You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, uh, before we get going, I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor. It's a new podcast. Did you uh, did you guys like uh, reading Rainbow as kids? That is definitely uh, where I started to enjoy reading and storytelling. And it was all thanks to LeVar Burton. LeVar is back to recreate that magic for grownups on his podcast, LeVar Burton Reads. They've got the third season out this week. In each episode, LeVar handpicks a different short story and reads it aloud to you. Past episodes have featured stories from Neil Gaiman, Octavia Butler, Haruki Murakami, and many more. Uh, They're out with season three now. The first story is a piece of speculative fiction by Rebecca Roanhorse. I really recommend it. Don't miss it. Subscribe to LeVar Burton Reads wherever you listen to podcasts today. Also presenting the show this week, it's The Supergroup from Stitcher Premium. If you are looking for a new podcast that combines your passion for comedy and music, you should listen to The Supergroup. On each episode, uh, the hosts invite a comedian and a musician to write and record an original song with them over the course of the week. You hear every step of the process. Uh, They've had on Open Mike Eagle, Ted Leo, Paul F. Tompkins, Janet Varney, and many more. Uh, The podcast is very funny, but the songs are totally legit it's really addictive listening so i encourage you to check out the super group only on stitcher premium go to stitcherpremium.com slash supergroup and use the promo code longform it'll get you a free month of stitcher premium which is chock full of great shows like the super group all right here's our show Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with my co-host, Max Linsky. Hey, man. In this beautiful hermetically sealed box you've built us. Yes. We have a better studio new stu- now. New studio. Yeah. Uh, no longer will we hear those ke- empty kegs being thrown into the uh, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> closet inside Forno Rosso. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners uh, should know that uh, our last studio was built in like potentially the worst possible room to build a studio it reminded me of actually i was uh, watching some uh, the office reruns and when they start the michael scott paper company they're just a tube that like a flush toilet keeps <laughs> splashing through in like inside the office and that was basically our old studio that's not the first time i've been well, compared to michael scott um thanks to everyone who bought a t-shirt and helped uh support us 
That's how we pay for things like this. Yeah, that's how we make this thing possible. Uh, It also makes uh, vacations possible. And our third co-host, Evan Ratliff, is still on sabbatical. Yeah, he's like Jimmy Buffett style. We got a (laughs) permanent vacation. Um, I'm as excited about this episode as I have been about an episode uh, since I stopped counting how many episodes we do. Uh, Me too, man. One of of the all-time great guests uh, in long-form podcast history back on the show. Uh, Rukmini Kalamaki. So she covers ISIS for the New York Times and has been doing so for several years. I interviewed her in February of 2015 and uh, it remains my favorite thing I've done on this show. I'd say um, if you have the time, go back and listen to it first because this is kind of building on it. And if you have a lot of time, Go back and listen to that and also listen to um, her new podcast that she put out through the New York Times, Caliphate, uh, which is a 10-part series uh, that we talk about in this episode. I don't, I don't even want to build it up anymore, man. I just I just want to get to it. Yes. I do recommend re- listening to the show before listening if you're interested in that kind of listening thing. Listening to your two-part one? No, listening to Caliphate. Oh, got it. Because um, it's a big jump to shift from uh, front-page daily terror news reporting to a podcast that was a year and a half in the making. Mm -hmm. And the podcast, um, much like the first interview I did with her, is about what the life of a person reporting on terror is like. If, after all that listening, you're looking for something to read, go to readthissummer.com. It's uh, a collection of authors that our friend Shay Serrano is bringing to the Decatur Book Festival. I just was listening to Shay Serrano on the Bill Simmons podcast talking about the Kawhi Leonard trait. Shay Serrano's coming on the show. I yeah. I am uh, I'm going to make that happen. I could see you just pretending you're taping a show just so you could just call him and talk about <laughs> basketball for now. But actually, I haven't I haven't been recording. Um, Shay's coming on, but before that, or maybe after that, uh, on Labor Day weekend, Shay's bringing this group of authors down to the Decatur Book Festival. We did it last year. It's all sponsored by Mailchimp. It's a great time. And if you're looking for a book to read. Go to readthissummer.com. There's all sorts of picks from Shay and this group of authors on there. Well, as usual, thanks to MailChimp. And now here's Aaron with Rukmini. Where to start? So I looked up the last time we talked. Yeah, when was that? February 2015. Okay. So that was like not long after I started at the Times. So for you as a reporter, at that time we last talked, this is probably the biggest story in the world then, and it has moved from A1 to A9, still in the A section. How has your job changed as the public's perception and interest in ISIS uh, has risen? And I wouldn't say that people are disinterested in it now, but... uh, you know, we have a very different American political situation. All of the puzzle pieces have shifted. Well, I think that we're in a period right now where <laughs> I'm probably exaggerating, but it seems like 80% of the news is President Trump. Yes. So it's not just ISIS. It's yeah. pretty much everything else. Um, it's foreign news in general. Uh, I think that we're in a space in America where there's only appetite for that one thing. What that means for me personally is two things. It means that that crazy rhythm that I was on in 2015 and 2016, where I just felt like I couldn't get a breath, that has slowed down. And the positive of that is it means I can spend a lot more time on projects. So Caliphate was a year and a half in the making. Yeah, And it also means that the stories I choose 
have to go beyond, you know, just the prevailing assumptions. I have to dig down deeper and I have to use stories that I'm doing as exemplary of something that we don't yet know about. And it's a challenge, but it's also interesting. For people listening, uh, Caliphate is a 10-part radio documentary, podcast. I don't know how to talk about this. I think this. we're calling it a serialized nonfiction. The New York Times' first serialized nonfiction podcast. Okay. So with your permission, yes. I'd like to say, let's just assume people who are listening. Like, if you yeah. haven't listened to Caliphate, sure. it's free. Nothing's sure. stopping you. That's right. Go download it and listen. There are probably going to be some spoilers in this That's right. discussion. That's right. Yeah. Um, and also, if you want to know more about how Rukmini uh, started doing this, you should listen to my previous podcast, <laughs> right. my previous serialized nonfiction <laughs> adventure. With That's her. right. Can, can I just say that that was then the longest thing I had done in radio? Yeah. I came to see you to do the long form podcast. And I think, I mean, I didn't ask you how long I was supposed to be in the studio. So I just assumed that it would be one hour and hour before I actually had dinner plans. And, and I kept on sending text messages to the person who was supposed to meet me until finally I was like, I'm not coming. I, <laughs> I think we were here for what, like three, three hours? And a half, we taped for, there was, it was three amazing. and a half hours of rock. It was amazing. And I have to say, you're a really good interviewer. Because I Because there's a lot, you got me to say things that I don't normally talk about. Well, I hope I can do that again. I'm more guarded now. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but um, that was yeah. also unique for me. I usually tape for about an hour, and I also had dinner plans, and I was also <laughs> texting. And I was just like, well, until she physically leaves the studio, I'll just keep asking her questions, and I'll see when she breaks. That's right. Um, so um, continuing with that uh, interrogation yeah. um, tradition. Tradition. There you go. So at what point did you, was it your idea to do a radio thing? It actually wasn't. It's a very New York Times story in that my colleague Andy Mills, who was then at Radiolab, had interviewed for a job at the New York Times. We were getting ready to launch The Daily, which is our, our daily podcast. And in his interview, they asked him, so what are the kind of things that you like to do? Are there any projects you'd like to do? And he said, I'd like to do a serialized podcast with Rukmini Kalimaki on ISIS. And the, the people interviewing him said, great, great, let's do that. And and they said that without asking me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and thank God they then came and asked me. And of course, I was completely flattered and, you know, very happy to do it. But uh, it was Andy's idea. And he, I had never thought of ISIS as something that would work well for radio. Yeah, I would have thought like, the same thing. Yeah. So much of our previous discussion yeah. was, on Telegram, on right. Signal, on all of these right. text format. Like, I, I almost right. feel like you could make like a iPhone documentary <laughs> that was all like chats, chats about exactly. ISIS. Exactly. But um, other than a few times when you said that you had like Skyped with people, yeah. it seems like most of the communication was not was even electronic. phone. Yeah. That's right. And a lot of things have happened since then. So one of those things is that ISIS has lost a lot of territory. Yep. And with every square mile of land that was taken back, you have an area of land, you know, a piece of real estate that you can go as a journalist to visit. And you can find human beings that either interacted with ISIS, collaborated with ISIS, or were victims of ISIS. So that gives you people that you can then interview, right? And secondly, there was now a bank of people that were in jails in the Western world that were ISIS members that we could try to reach out to. And so that's sort of the way we started to think about it. And we never imagined that we, we would actually be able to meet an ISIS member in the flesh in North America, mm. right? In nature, let's say, in the wild. <laughs> um, and that's what ended up happening. Tell me about why meeting someone in the flesh 
would be different than, say, interviewing them by phone or something like that? Look, when you're interviewing them by, and I, I was mostly speaking to them on Telegram chats, when you're speaking to them in a chat function, they're using a kunya, a nom de guerre. So in this case, he would have been Abu Huzaifa al-Kanadi, right? And oftentimes, they don't go beyond that. They won't tell you their real identity. And that, at the New York Times, presents a real problem. Because then you're you're talking to your editor, yeah. and you say, well, he really sounds like an ISIS member. He's saying all the right things. Well, how, how can you be sure that it's not somebody in his mom's basement, you know? Yeah. And so how can you be sure that this is really an ISIS member that you're talking to? You can be sure if they're in jail, okay? Yeah. Then somebody else has sort of done the work for you, right? Or... You can be sure if you meet them out in the world and the way you met them led you to learn their real identity. And through their real identity, you can then fact check elements of their story. Right. So that's part of it. And then beyond that, I mean, there's a human interaction, you know, that happens when you're face to face with somebody that you know, you try on the phone to create a human connection. It's not as easy as when you're able to look at somebody face to face. When I was listening to this Abu Josefa, we we call him Husefa. 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 When I when you started to pick apart his story, so yeah. the first half of Caliphate is basically a first person, yes, member of ISIS describing what pretty much from start to finish, exactly. joining, participating in, and leaving ISIS. Exactly. With very few interruptions. It's almost like it's him doing the podcast. That's right. Other than some framing of how you've got him. That's right. Even with this deep focus on him, there's a huge amount of doubt in the show. And and I could feel it both in your skepticism in real time and then later when it revealed things. And it made me think back on everything I know about ISIS and that those are probably sources that are not nearly as vetted as this guy. I mean, you really focused your laser beam on one person and it was still pretty murky what you found. Yes. Um, Like when we learn about all this stuff, are we learning this weird (laughs) fractured fake history? I don't want you, yeah. I'm not asking you to um, dispute your own no, previous I, reporting, but. N- n- I mean, I think this is the problem of reporting on ISIS. You will see so many stories that, that go out there where it's the account of somebody who is retelling to a reporter what they did inside ISIS. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing that's been done to fact check it. And the journalist is sort of, you know, gets off the hook by saying, well, he said. Yep. He said, he said, he said, right? I'm not that kind of reporter. You know, like that's not enough. And that's yep. not New York Times standards. It's not enough to have somebody say that something happened. You then have to make an effort to see what you can and cannot confirm. And what I'm really proud about with this particular podcast is, you know, I, I can recall when I was younger in this profession and I was just starting out, you start out reporting something. And you get pretty far down and you think that one set of facts is the whole story. And you then find out things that either don't fit that theory or you have holes, holes that you cannot explain. And, you know, when I was just starting out, I thought that it made my story weaker to acknowledge the holes, right? To say, hey, listen, readers, listeners, I don't know X, Y, Z about this particular account that I'm telling you. And as I've matured in this profession, I've actually realized that 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 is really important. It's really important to tell readers, here's what we know, this is what we were able to vet, and here is what we don't know, okay? And in the case of Hosefa, there's a lot we don't know. Yeah. And this was 
a long discussion, you know, with my team. And I'm really proud of how we resolved it. There were moments when we worried that if we put this out, and there is so much that we cannot, where the only authority saying it is him, we were worried that that would weaken the overall experience. And I felt strongly that, in fact, it makes it more interesting. It makes it more layered and it makes it more real. That's what real reporting is. You know, half a lot of the times when you're dealing with something like a terrorist group where the events happened in this black hole, which is ISIS controlled territory, that's an area where no Western journalist could go without quite literally losing their head. There's going to be areas where you just cannot get secondary confirmation of what happened. And so I'm proud of the fact that we were very clear with our public about that. I had never thought of war zones. I mean, I think of them as places of danger and um, places where, as a reporter, you could get kidnapped. But I hadn't ever thought of them as such an information void yeah. where yeah. you can't even really prove that someone was in a country. I mean, right. if I asked you to prove that uh, during this period that Abu Husefa was in Syria, if I was someone was asked to use the internet to prove that I was in America. It takes two seconds. That's right. I'm in all these people's Instagram That's right. photos. That's right. CCTV all over the place. That's right. You could probably, without a ton of work, track where I was every day. Right. This is like 10 months of someone's life where we're not really sure what continent he was on. I mean, right. Um, there's and, some... that's, and that's exactly the problem. The problem of the journalist in that scenario is also the problem of law enforcement. Right. And one of the ethical dimensions of the podcast that we wrestled with from the beginning is, was our podcast going to get this man arrested? Right? He had agreed to speak to us on the condition that we used only his kunya, his nom de guerre, that we did not say what town in Canada he was from. We never did. But everything else was pretty much game. And he began that process, and I think he thought that that would protect him from law enforcement identifying him. And in fact, one of the reasons I insisted on going back to Canada to see him right before publication is I wanted to look him in the eye and say, you're probably going to be identified. It's your voice. There's only 10 or so ISIS members that have returned to Canada. So it's already one in 10. Yeah. And it's your voice. And it's a very specific story, right? Was Were you yeah. going like, that's kind of crazy that he is agreeing to this? What, well, what, what, this is a whole other thing. He, so it was a year and a half recording and, and a reporting process that we went through. He was on board with it for about a year. And about six months before publication, he first asked us, can you change my konya? Can you change my non-de-care? And we went back to him and we said, we can't. I mean, all of our tape is you saying, Huzefa, Huzefa, you know, that we, if we beep it out the whole time, it's just going to, it's not going to work. So he then, you know, he then demurred. He came back a little bit later and then it finally went to him trying to kill it by trying to tell us I made everything up. Right. But at that point, we had several different um, government agencies confirming the basic outlines of his story. And we had these other pieces of the story where we knew at a very minimum, he joined ISIS and went to Syria. Um, but we wrestled with this idea. Was our project going to cause harm to a source? But the source is ISIS, yeah. right? And in the end, that didn't happen. And that's a whole other thing where Canadian officials, from everything I've learned, are not able to lock him up for the same reasons that we were not able to say with 100% certainty that he did the things that he said he did. 
And there's another case of a, some an American in Dearborn. An American who's being returned in the next few days. Um, he's one of only three Americans that have been caught on the, uh, three American men yeah. that have been caught on the battlefield. One was successfully returned, prosecuted, I think he got like 20 years. Uh, this is going to be another test case. But there's a guy that's being held in Syria right now. Um, he's been identified only as John Doe. His lawyers have, have not allowed him to be identified. And I have seen uh, the evidence. It's pretty clear to me that this is an ISIS member, but the case has fallen apart for some of the same issues that we dealt with with Huzaifa, namely that the evidence they have would not be able to be entered into court because of the rules of due process and forensic data. So for example, this guy John Doe, he filled out the same intake form that we hear Huzaifa uh, fill out when he reaches ISIS-controlled territory. Basically, when you get into ISIS-controlled territory, you're put in a dormitory, and an ISIS bureaucrat takes down your mother's name, your father's name, you know, your, your background, your education, and literally creates a dossier for you to signal your entry into the Islamic State. John Doe's dossier has been found. I have a copy of it. The U.S. government has a copy of it. That should be an enormous piece of evidence to show yeah. that this guy is really ISIS. Well, the issue is chain of custody. If this goes, you know, before a court in America, his lawyers are going to say, well, how do you know that this is, how do you know that he actually filled out, you know, this thing? How is the, how do we know that this is not fake? And how do you prove that this document that was carried out on a USB stick by presumably somebody that had some link to ISIS is the real deal, right? I yeah. have to say as a, a layman who doesn't yeah. fuzz, it's a strange trajectory we've gone from kidnapping people, putting them in secret detention <laughs> right. centers on right. boats and in other countries. That's right. Putting them in Guantanamo uh, with very limited due process. Yeah. To, yeah, we know he was in Syria, but, and we like have a document, but we can't. I mean, that evidence compared to the evidence of some of the people who are in Guantanamo yeah. seems stronger. Right. Um, and, it almost feels like there's like two different systems being applied. Is that because these are American and Canadian citizens? Well, definitely um, citizens. And I wouldn't say just American and Canadian. I would say citizens of Western liberal democracies. They all come from systems that have due process, right? The enemy combatant model has been very problematic. You know, President Obama tried very hard to shut down yeah. Um, Guantanamo Bay and the detention center there. So the consensus seems to be that the best thing is to bring these people back on Western soil and try them there. It's more transparent. It doesn't play into the jihadist group's propaganda because Guantanamo is, is a place that is associated with torture and bad things. Yeah. But then you're up against the limits of the law. And what is ironic is people that only got as far as the airport, as far as JFK, let's say, or O'Hare yeah. or you know, or Newark Airport, those people are being picked up and are being regularly prosecuted and put away for, for long periods of time. Because once again, everything up to that point happened on U.S. soil in a situation where you can get their phone records, you can start looking at their chats, you can, you can see the evidence that they're communicating with the terrorist group, showing intention to join it. Once they go over there, I mean, you can maybe prove that they entered Syria. There's, there's actually no checkpoint there. You're being right. smuggled across, you know, a line in the sand. Um, so you can make inferences based on, well, he entered through, we think, through Jarablus. This is one of the well-known entry points into ISIS-controlled territory. But if from that point on, nothing emerges, no video of him in a propaganda shoot, 
no intake form from ISIS, then how do you prove that this person really was in ISIS? And if they get a good defense lawyer, that person's going to say, well, maybe he was a journalist, you know, trying to create, you know, a portfolio as a freelance reporter in a war zone. I've heard of all like a real range of ways to deal with people who are returning from the Scandinavian model, which yeah. is rehabilitatory, um, basically putting people in job programs and giving them therapy and just pushing them right back into society yeah. to countries where they're almost certainly going to get executed to these American, Canadian, and, and um, these smaller examples where we're only talking about a few people. When these different approaches come up, do you think that they in, will inform future generations? Like, will a future teenager mm -hmm. in a chat room who is being recruited for not necessarily ISIS, whatever, yeah. whatever comes after, yeah. say, well, this is what happened to someone who did something like this? I think that you make a good point, which is what we do with these ISIS members is definitely going to have repercussions down the road. So right now, in just in Syria, in a collection of facilities that are run by coalition partners, by Kurdish rebels that are backed by the United States, they are holding around a thousand ISIS members from 50 different countries. And the reason they're holding them is those countries don't want them back. What's going to happen with them? Is it just going to be this open air Guantanamo where they kind of leave them there forever? The Kurds have been consistently complaining. Um, the Kurds are the rebel group that's yeah. holding them they don't want to be holding them you know like they were fighting this fight because they have an independence you know struggle over there and they've suddenly been left holding the bag of 1000 extremely dangerous in some cases isis members some of some pretty famous isis figures are in this modern age you know this new day sort of guantanamo a thousand's um, a lot of people a too i mean is a lot of kurdistan people. isn't like a giant country yeah. it's a lot of people to it's get a, custody it's a lot, of. and yeah a lot of able bodied young men who who held various positions yeah. in the world's most feared terrorist group. And so, I mean, for example, the Beatles are there. These are the British citizens yeah. who held James Foley and uh, Peter Kassig and Kayla Mueller, the, the Americans who were killed. Yeah. The Brits do not want them back because they're afraid that the case is going to fall apart in British court. Britain does not have the same material support laws that we do. There's a lot of restrictions about what kind of evidence is allowable in court. And so they're there in this limbo. Um, the families of the executed hostages said in the New York Times editorial, bring them to the U.S. It, it does nobody any favors if we put these guys in a black hole in Guantanamo. What would be helpful is put them on trial in America where you can see them in the dock and they're yeah. going to look like a bunch of pathetic people yeah. um, and where you can take them apart and let them face justice. I've heard people talk about a kind of ISIS Nuremberg trial. But that's, yeah. you know, that's going to be years in the making. I don't, I don't even know if that's ever going to happen. But we're now in this, I mean, it's really a problem. What are we going to do with these people? And there's going to be more that are captured because ISIS still controls over 900 square miles of land just in Iraq and Syria. Hey, uh, I'm going to pause things here to give a word from our sponsor this week, which is Google Play. Did you know that you can now download and listen to audiobooks directly on Google Play? That's right. Hands-free listening using Google Assistant or Chromecast. 
You can enjoy thousands of titles a la carte with no subscription necessary. Uh, whatever device you're on, multi-device integration across the whole Google ecosystem. So you can be listening on your phone and your desktop and your smart thingamajigger. Anyway, uh, I really enjoy this. I don't really want to subscribe to a books on tape thing or audiobooks or whatever they're called, uh, because I don't use them all the time, but sometimes I need to plow through something for the show and I want to pick it up. I've really enjoyed Google play for that reason. I've already got a Google account. It's all quite easy, uh, for you to get involved. You can get 10 bucks off your first purchase by visiting g.co slash play slash long form. Again, g.co slash play slash long form. Find your story with audiobooks on Google Play. Here I am back with Rukmini Kalamaki. was almost positive that we were going to eventually cross the Nazi yeah. story. So That's right. I, I, I prepared myself <laughs> That's right. That's for right. it. And so when you're covering this, are you have you gone back and looked at how people covered the denazification process and these kinds of accounts? I um when I I remember growing up, uh, I'm Jewish that uh well, a, the Nuremberg trials were kind of like a, a big historical deal and also these kinds of oral histories like yes. Shoah that Sh- where people right. were able right. to document and and most of that was from the side of the victims yep. but there's also I think Claude Lausman did a second film that's a guard at Auschwitz it's just a two-hour conversation oh, with wow. a guard at Auschwitz but um, there was a whole effort yeah. um, both to hold the people accountable and right. figure out who they are and that's who right. did what and, and to record the history and to record the history that's an interesting parallel I admit, I recently bought uh, the rise and the rise and fall of the Third Reich on Amazon. <laughs> um, it's very, very thick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but look, I tend to shy away from comparisons with with the Holocaust because, of course, that's its own thing. Sure. Six million victims. Nothing compares to that. But I think there are parallels in those two areas that you mentioned, which is one: how do you how do you get justice? this? What, what does that even look like? I know that on Sinjar Mountain, which is the ancestral home of the SD people, mm-hmm. this is the ethnicity that was targeted by ISIS for rape. Uh, the young women and girls were kidnapped by ISIS and systematically enslaved and raped. Yezidi activists and leaders have been agitating and have been working to try to create a Nuremberg-style trial to hold the rapists accountable. They've created a list of the various nationalities that they know took part in this. They have the names of the slave traders. They're trying to collect documents because the sale of these girls was this organized thing. The sale happened in front of a Sharia tribunal and there was a contract. Yeah. Um, so there's paperwork you know, that goes with it. But they're kind of alone. Like nobody seems to be taking them up on it. They're incredibly frustrated because the Iraqi government, which whose troops led the advance into some of the villages that were the most important Yazidi villages captured by ISIS, made no effort to collect the records that were there or to preserve them or to share them with the Yazidi community. So I think that that needs to happen, right? These people need to be held accountable for what they've done. And secondly, I think that all of us who are reporting on this need to contribute to um, to a record of what has happened. Yeah. Does that signal a shift for you? Like when we talked last time, 
you were like living out of a suitcase, <laughs> you looked exhausted, right. um, and you were covering breaking news where these stories yeah. just came out of nowhere, and then it's like, who are these guys? Where were they trained? Right. And now you're moving into a role that's also more of a historian role, and I imagine that that is both like uh, has like better working hours, but it's also way more monumental. So, you know, when I um, when I was first at the AP, and as you know, I was at the AP for 10 years, the Associated yeah. Press, before I joined uh, the New York Times. The AP is, you know, their bread and butter is breaking news. And I remember for years and years thinking, God, if I just had a little bit more time, you know, like I, I'm given so little time on these stories. You yeah. know, this interesting thing happens and then you're turning it around in, in 12 hours, uh, if that. And eventually at the AP, I, I reached a senior enough level that I was allowed to start working on projects. And the first big one that I did was an investigation into the use of children in gold mines in West Africa. And I thought, this is the bomb. This is it. I finally I finally arrived. <laughs> what I didn't realize is that when you work on a long-term project, and that was a project that took over a year, you're carrying this one thing, you know, for so long, and you don't actually know, is it any good? Right, you yeah. you don't know if it's going to land. You don't know if the effort that you have, uh, that you have invested, you know. Where, whereas I was sort of doing like almost a story a day, you know, yeah. before now you're carrying this one entity and just praying that all of the effort that you've put into it is somehow going to going to make it okay. And I had not computed what the stress of that was like. The stress of having to pull things around is just feeling tired all the time, feeling rushed and harried all the time. But there's also there's also, I don't know how to say it, but like the immediate gratification of having finished a task yeah. <laughs> and putting it out into the world and then moving on to the next thing. So it's true that I am approaching that point in my life. I'd love to write a book about this at some point. I've started to, I've been keeping a journal for a while now, and I've started in my free time, you know, to kind of try to organize some of my notes and organize my thoughts. And at some point, I would like to do that. I don't know when, but at some point, I would like to do that. So- this strategy in the second half of Caliphate, yes. um, you are in Mosul or on the outskirts of Mosul. Yes. And your number one goal is to get to this building yes. where you believe records are being held. That's right. Before whatever befalls that building. That's right. And that's a methodology that you started at the AP. That's right. In Africa. Yeah. Where, uh, in Mali, in the yeah, country of Mali. Just for people listening, give me the 30-second the summary of what happened there. Sure. In 2012, Al-Qaeda's uh, franchise in North Africa took over half of the country of Mali in conjunction with some other rebel groups. They established a government, and they began ruling this patch of land, much in the same way that we later saw ISIS ruling Raqqa or ruling Mosul in, in miniature. In 2013, French forces went in to flush them out, and I managed to follow right behind the French forces so that I was in the city of Timbuktu, which was their capital, a couple of days after it was liberated. And they had basically just dropped everything and fled. And in the buildings that they had occupied, where I was taken by locals, I found thousands of pages of documents that they had left behind. And I was completely new to this beat. Um, I had just the presence of mind to realize that this might be important. So I picked them up, even though I didn't know what they said. I hauled them back to my, to my hotel and I began working with translators. And what was in those documents just 
blew open my world. I had thought of Al-Qaeda as a bunch of guys in a cave. And there I was holding a memo from a senior Al-Qaeda leader who was upbraiding a more junior Al-Qaeda commander for, among other things, having failed to turn in his expense reports. You know, pointing to the fact that they had an administration and they're expected to turn in expense reports on time. So I spent the better part of that year, 2013, working on a series of stories about that. And that was the birth of this beat for me, where I realized a couple of things. I realized that these terrorist groups, they occupy a larger than life presence in our foreign policy. The drone wars, that's all about this. Guantanamo is all about this. The more than trillion dollars that we've spent on the war on terror is all related to this. And yet these groups that we are fighting remain incredibly misunderstood right? I had, you know, lawmakers contacting me saying I had no idea that Al-Qaeda is this organized. And so I realized that going directly to the terrorist group was an interesting avenue of inquiry. And the most obvious way to do it is to look for their documents, which you can only do in sort of limited places. You can only do it in places that they have held for some time right after they've been liberated. But I've tried to do that in my reporting, I mean, I've tried to go to the terrorist group in my reporting through a number of other avenues. So as you know, I basically track them online yeah. and then I try to speak to them. And I have, whenever I'm in Iraq and Syria, I always spend a significant amount of time in the jails just interviewing them. Interviews that oftentimes are never published. I've interviewed dozens of them by now and I've, I think I've put on the record that Huzaifa, the rapist in chapter nine, <laughs> one guy who was cited in one of my ISIS file story, like really like a handful of them I've put on the record because of the issues we've discussed about how do you fact check their stories. Okay. So you've done this a few times now. Yes. And you've got this black hole of an ISIS territory where you can't just yeah. go in there and get the documents right. you want. Right. A, a, so... Are these documents mostly held in jump drives and on paper? Because I don't hear a lot about people like hacking into the ISIS yeah, right. bureaucracy. Look, whenever I got to these buildings in Iraq, and, and the thing to note is I was always with the Iraqi military, yeah. but I was with the regular army. I was with the guys, you know, the guys who were there to fight. Before I got there, military intelligence had typically already searched the buildings. And one of the ways I knew that this was an ISIS building, in addition to the graffiti and whatever we find on the wall, is we would always find a stack of, you know, um, you, you know the laptop computers, mm -hmm. right? That what do you call that? The tower, yep. right? You would find like four or five of these towers in the courtyard of the building we're about to search with the hard drive yanked out. Right. So clearly somebody who cared about the hard drive, namely military intelligence, was there before us. And they're the ones who are getting the electronic data. In the whole time that I did this, and I, you know, I was looking for ISIS documents on five different trips over a year and a half in Iraq, I think I found three USB sticks. You know, one of them was completely useless. It was like somebody's wedding photos. <laughs> you're so excited. You know, the you're entire like, yeah. run of friends on here. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, uh, I found in that building that you were talking about that I was trying to get to, we found a briefcase that belonged yeah. to an ISIS emir. And in the briefcase, there were three CD-ROMs. One was completely destroyed and we could never recover it. The second and the third were damaged. And Runa Sandvik, who's my incredible colleague at the Times and who deals with digital security and you know everything related to IT, 
she was able to fix them enough that we were able to get into them. And in one of them, we found just a trove of salary data and expenses. So basically, it was the guy whose briefcase we had was an accountant for one of ISIS's ministries. He was one of their money men. And these were this was his accounting for the expense report that he was writing to his bosses of his expenditures and of the salaries he had paid. There's a giddiness to your voice as you're like going into this place. Like I'm I'm a collector by yes. nature. Yes. Um, records are my biggest weakness, but um, I come from a family of collectors. And if it wasn't that, I'd be probably collecting something else. Yeah. And... I totally understand like the hunt for something that you have wanted for a long time and that you think is valuable and important right. Right. Uh, and finally getting it. I imagine that that's like a weird and slightly conflicted feeling for you. Like, Yeah, very conflicted because, of course, I mean, when we were in Western Mosul, we were also walking through the streets of an ancient city, of a historic city that was completely destroyed as a result of this war. And of course, I'm there as the reporter and I'm focusing on that. And I remember at one point I turned around and I looked at Hawk, who's my translator and now my friend, and he was tearing up. You know, he was close to weeping after seeing what had happened to the old city of Mosul. But the reason that this is so important is this is really the closest that I, as a Western journalist, can get to understanding ISIS. Interviews are great. But in interviews, you're always wondering, like, is the person playing me? Are they are, they're presenting a version of themselves? These records where you see a letter between an ISIS emir and his deputy emir discussing the fact that wheat prices in the territory they control are spiking and trying to come up with a policy because they're worried that the spiraling price of wheat might cause a rebellion among the civilians that they have to try to keep a lid on. It really feels like you're there, you know, like you're seeing something authentic about this deeply secretive group. And I don't think it gets better than that. I, um, that weird collector thing in me, like when my, my, my grandmother and my father died the same year, a couple of years ago. And so in short order, I inherited a Nazi dagger. What? Okay. That was my grandfather's, um, who he had fought in France during okay. the Second World War. Okay. And the rest of my family wanted to go bury it yeah. in the woods. Yeah. And I was like, it's an, I mean, like, you know, I want to show this to my kid, you know, like that's right. thing. That's right. And so I kind of made like a, see, I, I was like, oh, that's ridiculous. Like, we can't destroy history. Like, that's give right. me the Nazi dad. That's right. That's right. So I kind of like, I felt very clear about it when I was emailing. Yeah. And then the Nazi dagger arrived at my mother's house. And then I was like, I'm not sure I want this Nazi dagger anymore. It, uh -huh, it in my house. Yeah. evil. Right. Um, oh, interesting. Did it have some sort of insignia that clearly marked it as a oh, Nazi yeah, emblem? Oh, yeah, swastika on. on I mean, it on, was like a, yeah. um, a ceremonial. It was dagger, like, a, okay. like an officer's dagger. That's right. And I somehow thought that the the texture of real history mm -hmm. would be meaningful That's and it right. was much more horrifying huh. in person. I, I see. That's so for you, like, do you still have that briefcase? Is it in your house? So what we decided to do is after we reported the stories that we reported, the documents that I had were sent to a high-end scanner. There, Most of them are still there. And the originals are going to be returned to the Iraqi government. Mm. on the understanding that these documents could be useful in prosecuting ISIS members in their territory. So the originals are no longer with me. But um, regarding the awfulness of it, 
I totally get where you're coming from. And I had that conflicted feeling about ISIS paraphernalia, like um, the ISIS flag. In Mosul, I was able to find this big medallion that was basically an enormous sticker. One was actually on the wall, but one was still in its packaging on the floor. And it's just the ISIS flag, but made as a sticker, you know? And that's not a document per se, right? It's a poster. And the troops that I was with, the Iraqi forces, asked me to take it. And so I did. But that's the kind of thing where it was in my house until we turned it over to the scanners who are turning them over to to the Iraqi embassy. But there was a weird feeling about that kind of thing, you know, where it's just the symbol uh, of the group. The documents themselves, though, to me, that's the embodiment of knowledge, Mm. right? And there's something so interesting about the tactileness, you know, of them, where um, I can't read Arabic, but I have learned to recognize certain phrases. Their slogan, Dawla Islamiyah, means the Islamic State. And so you can recognize those, and you know you're holding an authentic document from a very secretive and very dangerous group (laughs) that I could not normally interact with, you know, except in very limited capacities. How has it been being part of this story for so many years um, in different ways and in different countries Mm -hmm. at different speeds? Well, it got very personal in, I think, not long after I met you. Um, So sometime in 2015 was the first time that the FBI came to see me and my bosses to say that, that they had intercepted what they thought were real threats against me. They came a total of three times, so 2015, 2016, and I think 2017. And that sort of changed the equation for me. I became, whereas I'm typically very open and, you know, like I I just kind of, my life is out for everybody to see, I suddenly had to become kind of a more guarded person. So, for example, I don't tell people where I live anymore. I only tell people that I trust uh, my husband's name uh, because, unlike me, you know, he isn't as careful on Facebook and things of that nature. Um, (laughs) The first day that the FBI came to see me, they had a piece of paper. And I'm going to mess this up, but basically what they said was, we at the Federal Bureau of Investigations have intercepted credible threats against Rukmini Kalimaki and, and it had my husband's name, you are the subject of a terrorist threat. And that, of all things, kind of spooked me, that they would have my husband's name. Later on, we figured out that I had been, you know, friending people on Facebook. People asked me to friend them, and I was just sort of friending them. Yeah. And as soon as you friend me on Facebook, then you've got access to all of my pictures, yeah. and you can figure out who my husband is. So I went home that night and I explained to him what had happened. We figured out that it was on Facebook. He spent, like, the next day trying to figure out how to how to tweak the security settings to kind of remove himself from my friends and then finally he unfriended me (laughs) (laughs) Um, so basically we couldn't figure it out and so like we now just have two completely separate facebook presences and and unless you know us you won't know that we're connected and he also unfriended a whole bunch of my friends (laughs) so but for an enterprising person i mean this actually comes back a little bit to the canadian himself Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. you you can say like oh I, i i didn't do that stuff i was lying but you've left this amazing paper trail. Like I remember from right. when we did the podcast, That's right. sorry about that. Yeah. I mean, but yeah. um, like you told me that you met your husband That's right. and while you were stationed in Africa, we That's know right. what country he's from. That's right. Um, I won't say it again, That's but right. I know his, what his job exactly. is. Exactly, it's um, changed. It's, it's changed. changed, okay, it's there changed. you go. Yeah. But um, all of these things, exactly. are con- you can triangulate, exactly. it's not hard to triangulate not... where someone is between exactly. those, those exactly. points. Um, 
the the FBI was nice enough to give me basically an email that we then sent to the main search engines that have um, that have people's home phone numbers and, and home addresses, LexisNexis, YellowPages.com. And so I went through this attempt to bleach my record. Yep. But of course, we are still findable. If you are a good reporter, you can easily find yep. uh, find me. And that's just the reality you yeah. know, of it. So you're never completely unfindable. But I've learned to live with it because in the end, I had three moments where the FBI considered that there were threats against me. And that's really nothing compared to American forces who are constantly being threatened by this group or politicians or, you know, a a whole host of other people who are far more important targets of this group than I. I, This is probably a stupid question. But why does ISIS want to kill you? I feel like you've given them in some ways the fairest shake they were going to get to at least represent themselves as they represent themselves. I would imagine that the person who replaced you at the New York Times, should a calamity occur to you, would be less interested in depth about right. what they're doing. That's right. And is it because you're actually good at like really listening to them? Is that the problem? So the very first time after that interaction with law enforcement, I tried to go back through my social media presence, what I had just published to try to figure out what is it that had set them off? Not that I would do anything necessarily differently, but I was just curious what yeah. it was. And what it was is I had published a story about the Yazidi rapes. We called it the theology of rape, Yeah. right? And it was the first story. There had been many stories done about the fact that Yazidi women were being raped, but it was the first one that showed in detail how they were using religion to justify the horrible acts that they were doing. And this is referred to in Caliphate also, where you describe exactly. people praying before exactly. these rapes. Yeah. Exactly. And funnily enough, that really set them off. And what set them off is not, I mean, they own the fact that they have kidnapped uh, the Yazidis and taken them as sex slaves. What set them off was the word rape. Yeah. <laughs> so they were messaging me at this. Some, some of them were talking to me at this point and, you know, very angrily were saying to me, how dare you say this? This is this is religiously justified. Here is the Hadith where it says that it's OK. And I'm like, yeah, that's what my story said. They said, no, 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 you called it rape. And I'm like, well, what would you like me to call it? It's sex with a slave. <laughs> the definition of rape <laughs> is when you have sex with somebody against their will, right? And they just, they could not see that. It was the fact that I was using a negative word to describe what they, in their warped point of view, thought was some sort of religious act that really like set them off. So once I realized that, I just realized there's really nothing I can do. I mean, this is, they're completely irrational. <laughs> you know, of course we're going to use the word rape in describing what has happened to the Yesterday girls and women. But I think it's an interesting example of the concerns of a terror group That's being right. very different. Than, <laughs> like, even in the case of um, Abu Zosef, Huzefa, the Canadian, he, when you really get to the root of why he was lying to you, it's because he wants to be recognized as a like OG first generation ISIS dude, <laughs> right. not a bandwagon jumper. He's like, right. I'm not like these guys <laughs> right, who exactly. just came over here after the party started. <laughs> That's right. And without years of experience, yeah, I wouldn't 
I could never conceive of that outcome as to be why a person was lying. They wouldn't lie and say I wasn't an ISIS <laughs> or say like lie and say like, oh, I've always been an ISIS. <laughs> right. Well, there's another wrinkle to why Josefa. So what we know for sure is we know for sure he lied to us about the timeline. Yeah. He tried to make it look like he had gone and joined ISIS in early 2014 before the declaration of the caliphate. The caliphate is declared in June, July of 2014. Yeah. And there's actually a, a good practical reason why he would want to do that. ISIS doesn't become the group that we know it to be until, I would say, the beheading of James Foley, which is August, September of 2014, and the killing of the other hostages. That was the moment when I think that ISIS just kind of blew onto people's TV screens and, and on, on the front page of newspapers, and people realized, oh my God, there's this horrific group. He thought that by saying that he had been there before the declaration of the caliphate, that he could pass himself off as an aid worker, as this idealist who had just gone there to fight the crimes of yep. the Assad regime, which doesn't sound so bad, right? Yeah. Although no um, Americans going to be like, oh, you're, oh, you're, yeah, oh you're, you're, you were in ISIS you're, before you're the Foley generation. events? <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, welcome. Oh, welcome. <laughs> welcome home. Yeah, exactly. Um, and later on, when, you know, when we were really pushing on him, he made an offhand comment about how somebody had advised him, to put it this way. Mm. And this is the stuff. This is the penumbra that is around, you know, the shadow that is around Josefa that I have as yet not been able to penetrate. On the one hand, he comes off as this really goofy guy that overshares. You know, yep. I mean, he sat down with a New York Times reporter and described murdering people. Yeah. But then he also does things that were quite smart and crafty. If you're trying to avoid getting caught. Yeah. Um, he tried to throw me off on the timeline. Mm -hmm. He tried to throw me off on how he got into Syria because um, he did not use the Canadian passport that he brought me that day. Right. Uh, and that took me like months to figure out. And so he mentioned in one moment, he said this, like this roughly, somebody told me that it would look better for me if I was there pre-caliphate versus post. So I wonder who, is there somebody coaching him? Well, this is why I, I think it requires so much experience to do the job you're doing Thanks. because I use a general game theory in my head. So I'm like, if I'm going to tell the truth, but I'm going to lie about a couple things, right. I'd be like, well, right. probably the murder will be the thing that I lie about <laughs> right. first, exactly. Exactly. not the like passport situation. Exactly. You <laughs> exactly. Know? Exactly. So if he had said, yeah, I was an ISIS, but I, I didn't hurt anyone. I was yeah. a cook. I would doubt the story, but I would be like, that is what I expect someone to That's do. Right. I'd expect him to diminish his exactly. role. Exactly. Instead, he goes... And he, he did exactly the opposite of what you expect somebody to do. Yeah. He, well, we don't know for sure, but he has revealed something that clearly incriminates him. Yes. Which is the type of thing that people typically lie about. Yes. And then he clearly lied about other things that it took us a while to understand and that seem much more minor, you know, when you went <laughs> versus what you did with the knife. You talked about him as a source early on, and I think that's an yeah. interesting distinction. I, I yeah. was a little surprised when you said source. I don't think in caliphate the word source, it may be probably, that's true. is, is that's true. used. Yeah. And I'm wondering what the obligations are there. Right. To the, and I know this is a gray area, so maybe it's more of an, uh, a prompt for discussion than anything sure. about saying, whoa, slow down, guy. You just confessed to a murder and all of this other stuff is gray area. But you're crossing on the record in your real line, real voice. If there's any kind of a line in the sand, this is it. Did you kill people in Syria? Yeah. Did you feel any obligation to say, hey? God, it was, I'll tell you. 
I'll tell you, Aaron, in that moment, when he began describing the first killing, where he's standing behind these tribesmen that have been brought out who are kneeling in front of him, you know, their hands handcuffed behind their backs, and he's describing how he's trying to pull the trigger. In that moment, I mean, of course, the reporter in me is just completely engrossed, but the human being in me felt afraid for him. Yeah. And felt it was hard for me to make eye contact with him in that moment, you know? I mean, my my mind was racing, and I, I was sure that that confession would be his undoing. And we then wrestled with that for the next year and a half. What is our obligation here, right? And what we came away with is, how can we not publish a murder confession from an avowed ISIS member? How can we not, Yeah. right? Wh- whose interest are we protecting then? What about the people he killed? What about their families? Do they not have a right to know what happened? But we wrestled with it. I mean, we wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with it. And in the end, I had misunderstood the Canadian legal system, which, as it turns out, is very different from our own. I think in America, he would now be in jail. In Canada, a confession, especially one that he then recants, because as soon as the proverbial stuff hit the fan, uh, CBC, the Canadian broadcaster, went and found him. And he immediately said, no, I I made up the killings, I made up the killings, but everything else is real, which was also surprising because I expected him, what he had threatened to do is to say, I made up the whole thing. And he instead instead chose this very precarious middle path, which is, no, I joined ISIS and I just happened to describe these killings so well in so much detail, but the killings are not real, (laughs) right? Um, The killings are probably the most detailed part of the tape. Exactly. Everything else, I'm kind of like, maybe you saw that like a... You've been talking to a guy or you have his journal or something and you're saying that you're him. Exactly. The killings were like, this is a lot of detail. And they're not even flattering killings. They're killings of older people. I mean, he's describing what it's like to kill a person who's older than you, which is not something I would make up because I've never thought about killing someone of any age. Yeah. Do you think he was just confused? Like as you were over this year and a half, Mm -hmm. were you interrogating what his motives for all of these things were? Well, a big one is what is his motive for speaking to me? Yes. That was a big one. And I have a working theory, but I might might be completely wrong. Sure. The working theory I have is that we got to him first. We got to him crucially before law enforcement. And we had gotten to him long enough after he had left. So we believe he left sometime in 2015. Um, and we're talking to him November 2016. And he had had a long enough time to think about everything. And I think I think he felt remorse. Yeah. And I think he wanted to unload. The interesting thing that we never revealed in Caliphate is he has confessed to those murders and one more to another person. I'm not going to say who, but okay. to another, a non-journalist, credible person where I think he was just trying to trying to have some sort of informal therapy. Right? I mean, this is something you hear about serial killers right. and murderers in general. Like generally it's like right. you actually can get away with a murder if you just like right. shut up for the right. rest of your life. Right. But that there is a natural human urge right. to at least dance around yeah. talking about these experiences. About so that so I think that was one motivation. But the second motivation is he didn't want to get caught. Yeah. Right. And so and he still doesn't want to get caught. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so he he wanted to sort of unload, but he wants to stay free. 
And right. I think in it's this like that year, OJ, like if I did it, right, I would have, you right, know, right. And and Aaron, I mean, let me just caveat it by saying, and I could be completely wrong. Sure, and he, he could have made up the whole thing, and yeah. we have we have left that possibility open, you know, in our podcast. He I I brought right. up the idea of like someone else's journal, yeah. right? That could be someone else's journal yep. that had all of those all of those murders details. and and the remorse and the That's feelings right. that that person had That's after right. committing those murders. That's right. What was? It's so hard to think. Go back to the scene where he talks about uh, whipping people. Yeah. These are so he's a member of the Hizbah. This is ISIS's religious police. His job is to patrol the streets looking for violations of Sharia law, including things like smoking, drinking, women being improperly dressed. And once those people are arrested and convicted of those crimes, it was his job to punish them, typically through floggings, through whippings that with a wire that has um, that has metallic tips on it. That detail. I had spoken to victims on the other side of that. I had spoken to an older woman um, uh, who lived near Mosul, and ISIS had progressively restricted women's dress codes. So initially it was, you just have to be veiled. Then they said that they have to wear gloves and uh, eventually socks. Uh, then they had to have another big covering over their entire body. And then eventually their faces had to be covered. And then finally, even their eyes had to be covered, right? That was like yep. a, a piece of film. And this older woman who was a grandmother had gone on a picnic in this well-known picnic place near Eastern Mosul. And she was with her husband and her kids, and she had lifted up the flap of this suffocating attire that she's made to wear to put the fork in her mouth of the food that they were having at the picnic when she was spotted by the Hezbollah. They took her to their headquarters. She was um, sentenced to, I can't remember, let's say 100 lashes. And because she's a woman, if you're a man, they take your clothes off. So you're, you're bare chested. If you're a woman, you still have your clothes on. She showed me her back. And it's just this, I mean, it looks like a Jackson Pollock. You know, I mean, it was just this crisscross of scars. She described this very thing that, because when you when you hear whipping, you know, I imagine like a belt and I think to myself, uh, how bad can that really be? It's horrific because it's an instrument that is created to rip off the skin. And in the course of that flogging, basically the skin comes off of somebody's back. And so there were two details there. The fact that he described the metal edges, which I had heard from the victims, and the fact that he described how the blood ends up splashing up on you, which she had described to me. She said that when, when she was done, she was so covered in blood that blood had sort of spurted on the floor, on the walls. So I'd heard it from the other side. And I don't know if you're some sort of psychotic liar. Would you really come up with those details? No. I mean, they're, <laughs> it's really kind of, it's really in the weeds. Yeah. Right? One thing that I've learned in all of my years of reporting, I think that people have this idea that if you lie about one thing, you must have lied about everything. My experience is that in every interview, people mostly tell the truth and they lie about some things, right? It's always a mixture of the two. And think back to when I was a high school student, I was trying to sneak out and I don't want my mom, <laughs> I don't want my mom to know, you know, where I've gone. So I've gone out to my friend Tina's house, right? Well, I'm, I'm going to say that we're going to do homework, which we did for like the first hour and not mention the fact that, you know, our boyfriends came to see us in the second right. hour, right? So you, you tell part of the, part of it is true. Yeah. And part of it isn't. And I think that's how people lie, actually. Yeah. Unless you're you're dealing with really deranged people. I think that the human experience of lying 
is always a mixture of truth and fiction. I mean, that sort of gels with what we were saying about like serial killers and confessions also where it's like, well, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but I'm going to hint to someone that I have this like dark secret That's right. or That's right. I killed someone in an accident once or <laughs> right. something like that. Right. Um, right. It's almost a, a way to draw the person into an empathetic situation right. with you without right. becoming totally vulnerable and, right. and playing your whole hand. Right, right. And I think the final element with Uzefa is I think he's proud of having joined ISIS. Yes. He's not proud of the killings and of the crimes, but he's proud that, you know, I mean, in some ultimate level, it does take courage to do what he did, which is to leave your life behind, go and be smuggled across the border into Syria, into this war zone, and live for months inside ISIS-controlled territory. And so there was an element of wanting to be found out about that, Yeah. right? Now, this is a working theory, and as I said, I could be completely wrong, and we have incorporated that into our telling of this young man's story. Was it a concern for you to not resolve the story? Um, I mean, the most popular podcasts, I think, yeah. uh, in the last few years, uh, Serial, these uh-huh. true crime podcasts. Right. I adore Serial. Um, I listen to it in Senegal in my bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a bit of yeah. experience. <laughs> right. So... When you set off to solve a mystery, that's right. Often you don't totally solve the mystery. In some cases, you don't solve the mystery at all, and you're playing a lot. When you hear that first episode, you're like, "I got nine more." You're playing a lot with the expectations of the listener. But the truth, Aaron, is when we came back. So when Andy and I set off to Canada to interview him, I mean, that interview we had basically had a couple of meetings. yes, we're going to do a podcast on ISIS. And we had all sorts of things on the whiteboard. We're going to go interview this person. I had sent out like 20 letters to various um, prisoners in in American jails, um, turned down by all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so we had, we thought that this was going to be one character out of many. Yeah. And when you described that jail yeah. with the 1,000 in Kurdistan, I was right. like, well, there's a Caliphate season two. <laughs> Caliphate season Tape two. the whole thing in a week there. <laughs> That's right. There you go. Right. Um, but uh, we thought he was going to be, it was going to be like the symphonic creation. And of course, I've never worked on audio before. And what I learned, of course, is because you can't like really rewind. You can, but it's not like an article where you, if you're kind of spacing out on the subway and yeah. you miss one paragraph, you can go back, you yeah. know, and just like read it again. It's really hard to do that on audio, right? And you can't also just say someone's like last name no. and it instantly connects and to connect. something from a different no. episode. No, So people, you have to be so present, you know, yeah. the whole time. And it's so hard to sustain even one, you know, even one character. And it wasn't until... I would say a year into the process that we finally committed to, okay, first half is going to be Huzefa's story. The overarching arc of it is going to be one year on the ISIS beat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that includes me going to Mosul, me learning about the Islamic State, um, Hawk, you know, these other things. But he started out as a much more minor part and became sort of the heart, you know, of the podcast much, much later. So that that thought process didn't happen in the way that you're imagining it. We talked about it later on, which was, is this going to be frustrating for people? And if you look at the comments on Caliphate, 
I would say the the vast majority of people dug it, but then you'll see a couple of like one stars where I'm like, this is bullshit. What the hell? I just listened to six episodes and the guy might have made it up, you know? And yeah. There's that frustration, you know, like where people, where a minority of people yeah. felt frustrated by that. Yeah. And, we, and I assume that you would have just pursued it if you found out that he had been lying. It would have been a story about a guy who lied about being in ISIS, right? Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, we had those discussions. What if we find out that he's lied about the whole thing? Right. Um, I owe a lot uh, to, to my editor, Michael Slackman. Michael's been my editor since I joined The Times in 2014. And he's one of these people who's just naturally skeptical. You know, like everything you bring to him, he, he's, he's triaging all the ways in which that source could have lied to me. And um, when we were sitting down with sort of the first cut, you know, of our podcast, he was saying, he, he was literally saying this, how do we know that this is not a person who's just imagined all of this? You know, there, there are people yep. who imagine things so well that then they think they actually did them, you know? And I, I was pushing back really hard going, but Michael, but he's admitting to murder. I mean, like why, you know, and he's still holding on to that story a year, you know, a year into it, even as he's getting incredibly worked up about the yep. fact that we're going to publish. At one point before publication, I told Josefa, I said to him, just tell me it's not true. Tell me that's, you know, look me in the eyes metaphorically because we're talking on the phone, but tell me it's not true. And he couldn't do it. Okay. So it's interesting that you you said it's a year in the life of an ISIS reporter. Yeah. The way I'm because of how long. God, who, whoever knew that cutting audio is so complicated? I have renewed respect I, for what, what your tribe does. I I once, I was discussing this with someone yesterday and, and they're like, how long does it take an edit an episode? And I was like, and they're like, you know, what is it, like an hour? And I was like, the audio is an hour. So it takes an hour to listen to it. And you probably want to listen to it twice. twice. So you're down two hours. Now you're starting. Now you know? you're starting, right, exactly. Like, you can't just, like, ingest it into your brain all exactly, at once. Exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah. But the way I read the structure, yeah, and I don't know if this was intentional, I don't know if it was after the fact, was you set up this unknowable unknowable which yeah. is we can't really know what he did in Syria. Yep. I think we probably know that he was in Syria but like we don't really want to go much past that That's in terms right. of facts. And then and you, we what we know from I mean multiple government agencies is he was in Syria, he joined ISIS and he was there roughly in the period of time that we later identified. But what did he do there? What did he do there? I mean he's an ISIS member, right? And so then and so then the question becomes do we believe his account, right. uh, this very detailed granular account of whipping, killing, executing, stabbing people? Or do we believe what he later told the CBC in a post-Caliphate uh, interview where he says, I made up the killings? And then you go to Mosul. Yes. And investigate in the way you could investigate on yes. the ground post-fall right. of yeah. um, ISIS. And you take another test case, which is a guy who's in yeah. a prison there, right. who tells a similar, not a similar story, but yeah. um, he tells a story of being in ISIS. And then because you're there and because the caliphate is falling apart, you're able we to go, speak to go, his we go, victim. We can go chase it. Yeah. And you're able to ascertain yeah. this story is bogus. Yeah. This guy probably joined ISIS ideologically. Uh, he had a sex slave. He bought a sex slave. He raped um, her. Yeah. yeah, you're able yeah. to like learn all yeah. the things that you maybe will never know about this Canadian. That's right. That's um, right. What like we can't investigate every 
victim. That's right. Story in that way. That's right. Like, where does this leave us? Where are we in history with this stuff now? Do you like yeah. what will you do with, with these documents now? So, so these documents for me are the skeleton of my understanding of yeah. this terrorist group. Um, only a portion of them have been translated. So I'm working with a team. Um, we haven't announced it yet, but a major university is going to be taking over the scans. And they're going to create a state-of-the-art database where researchers from all over the world and where victims from all over the world can go and see the very documents that we found. And they're going to be available in Arabic and in English. So that's a project that's in the making. On Huzaifa, at some point, something, you know, uh, think of the stories of Nazis that are caught when they're 90 years old, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, they're and, still, it's still happening. And it's still happening. And it's still, it's still happening. happening. We're at the very end. I We're think. at the very end of that. Last, last <laughs> uh, few out there. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he knows, he knows how he went in. My theory is we know he didn't use his Canadian passport. We know he didn't use his Pakistani passport. So he used a third passport. He doesn't have any other nationality. So he either used a fake passport. We investigated this. It's not hard in Pakistan to get them. Or he used the passport of somebody else that he knows. A relative, a cousin, God knows. He knows what that document is that got him in. And he's holding that close to his vest. Um these killings that he describes, yes, he says he was wearing a face mask, which is typical of how ISIS executioners dress. But perhaps someday a video is going to come out, right? A lot of people had cell phones, iPhones, and were filming these horrific things. This was always my premise about yeah. the Iraq and Afghanistan war yeah. was that there was going to be a boom yeah. in uh, verite archival documentaries That's after right. them because everyone has a smartphone with a That's camera. Right. The twist here that I didn't foresee was yeah. facial masking. That's right. Um, uh, right. I didn't foresee that a bunch of those people in the videos would be have black masks on, right. which makes the video right. basically worthless right. um, for and civilians. It, and it shows it shows ISIS's forethought. You know yeah. that they they have this very strict system of code names, non de guerres, mm -hmm. right? Everybody who comes into ISIS is called by their non de guerres. And what I learned in researching this is that they often don't know each other's real name. Yeah. And that's on purpose because if Huzaifa gets picked up, all he can tell me is that the guy he was hanging out with was Abu Abdullah, which is a made-up name, and maybe that he's Australian. Yeah. What do you do with that? D you know, it doesn't help you at all, right? It kind of um, sucks for the people who are from the countries with only a few fighters because it's that's like right. if you are like you if know, you're the if you're the, the Finn, you know, you know, if you're like Abdul the like Slovenian, it's like hey, yeah. there's only a couple of you Abdul, guys. Abdul Abdul of Luxembourg. Yeah. You know, like that. You don't you want to be cut in that situation, but that's yeah, right. and and you think that was forethought, like. Oh, yeah. That's think, not just yeah, traditional garmenting. No, no, no. I think, I, I mean, ISIS, of course, is Al-Qaeda in Iraq. They've been there since 2003 uh, fighting in Iraq. I mean, they've had a decade and a half where they've been actively hunted, you know, yeah. where they are on a kill list, where um, people are looking to do them harm. And so they've become increasingly, you know, good at this particular tradecraft of hiding. Look at Baghdadi. From the sources I'm speaking to, the last time that the U.S. government had even an inkling of where he might be was 2015. The most wanted man in the world. We have no idea where he is. Yeah. Right. Theories, rumors, you know, Elvis sightings <laughs> yep. aside, we have no idea where he's at. I was surprised. Um, I admit that I totally thought Caliphate would be something totally different. <laughs> I thought my favorite 
piece of nonfiction about terror uh, in, in book form is The Looming Tower. Me too, me too. I and adore so, Larry Wright, and I had dinner with him just a couple weeks oh, ago. Oh, yeah. cheers to him. Yeah, cheers to him. Um, and I agree. I was like, oh, Caliphate will probably be The Looming Tower for ISIS. In fact, we started out, my team was reading Looming Tower. So Andy was reading Looming Tower. This, you know, yeah. th- th- we That is, in a way, a model. But in audio, you also have to have voices and characters. Right? Well, also, just what you just said, yeah. like Dottie is, yeah. well, we don't even know where he is. <laughs> right. How can we tell a story right. about right. him? Exactly. You know, um, exactly. I expected you to tell the story of ISIS through ISIS's leaders, I see. not through its foot soldiers. I see, I see. And what ultimately the impression I got left with is that you did tell the story of ISIS through its leaders, but through the actions of its leaders, which were to create a bureaucracy right. under which terror was normalized, right. was systematized, right. where expense reports were That's right. dutifully cataloged. And that is their work. Yeah. Like on some trickle down level, those expense reports are because of Baghdadi and the leadership of That's ISIS true. and That's, what they built. That's true. That's one way to look at it. Yeah. I mean, you're looking at the blueprint of what they built. Yes. And it's a, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's a pretty intricate and involved blueprint. Yeah. I mean, where did they, how do you learn how to start the bureaucracy of a, a Sharia government? It's like, right. I, I can understand how people get together and yeah. plot to blow up a building. Yeah. I can't understand how they come up with a tax system. That's right. So this is the thing that I learned on my multiple trips to Mosul. And I learned this from the documents I found. And in the documents, I was able to see names. And I was able to track down some of those people who were named uh, in these records. What ISIS did was the exact opposite of what the U.S. did when we went into Iraq. So they take over Mosul. Of course, as soon as they take over an area, and they are a Sunni extremist group, Christians, Yazidis, Shias have all fled. So you have a mono society of fellow Sunnis. But among that society, what they then did is they used the loudspeakers that were mounted on mosques to announce to everybody, civil servants specifically, to go back to work. And so basically, they did not gut the civil administration that was there. Yep. They then came and in each ministry, they st- they collapsed some ministries, they got rid of a few, in most of them they got rid of a couple of departments that had nothing, you know, that were yep. in conflict with their with their ideology, but they left the skeleton of the Iraqi state there and told those employees that they had to go to work and to keep working and to keep it running. And then on top of that, they put their Sharia flavor And so, for example, in ISIS's Ministry of Agriculture, the guy who was the head of the land department, this is the department that leased out fields for rent to farmers. Um, He was the same dude that did it in the Iraqi government time. He then does it under a new title under ISIS's time. And now he's back doing it for the Iraqi government again. Yeah. No change. You know, like the only difference is um, that his letterhead was different. Right. And it doesn't sound like much, but. ISIS built its state on the back of the one that was there before. So they didn't start from zero. Yeah. And it doesn't sound like much until you think back to what U.S. forces did when we invaded Iraq and the debathification order that was passed, which basically gutted the state of Saddam Hussein. In an effort to get rid of the Ba'athist state, the state of Iraq was gutted. And that, in effect, created the vacuum out of which ISIS came. You describe this very specific moment, and mm. it's where the moment, if there's a fork in history, I yeah. think this is the fork. And I think it's, I'm also interested in like what it's like as a journalist when you've been covering for a long time, yeah. time sorry, and you say like this yeah. right here, this is yeah. where it all came down to, right. was they probably could have dug in their heels, 
not done operations yeah. outside of the area. Yeah. And I'm not saying like they would be like members of the UN, but, <laughs> but potentially people were just going to put up with them and there wasn't a lot of money and uh, firepower That's right. to, to unseat them. And without that big push from yeah. the West, That's right. potentially ISIS could still be in Mosul. And that big decision is to do this. I'm tying the snake's uh, hell, uh, the tail, head, head to tail here. Yeah to do these attacks in the West, which is when you picked up the story. That's right. I picked up the story... I mean, oh, you before were doing that. Africa I was, before that. I was right. in Mali doing Al-Qaeda. Yeah. But, but, the last, but last time we talked. The, la- the last beat. time we talked, exactly. That's true. I think there's a truth to that. It's a little bit more than that. It's the killing of the Western hostages, which yep. immediately mm-hmm. you know, got attention. It's the takeover of the Yazidi territory and yep. the enslavement of the Yazidis. But I think you're right. We were in a moment in history where the Obama administration had just drawn down American troops in Iraq. That was a campaign promise he had made to get us out of these two wars, right? Yep. And there it was. American troops had mostly left, um, no mostly troops, left Iraq. No Guantanamo. Right, exactly. And so there was an enormous reluctance to get reinvolved in this conflict. And if it hadn't been so bad... And if there wasn't a direct tie to the West's interests, namely through the Paris attacks, the Brussels attacks, and so on, I don't know that they would have stayed there forever, but I think it would have taken longer because it really was a question of moving heaven and earth to get the Iraqi army to collaborate with the Kurds, the rebels in the north of Syria, to get all of these moving pieces to agree and to basically go in and flush out ISIS. It, was, it took a lot of diplomacy and work for the coalition to make that happen. I think you're right to say that those beheadings maybe were the beginning yeah. of that story. Yeah. And it's not really the savagery, it's the theater of savagery right. that got people's attention. It's, That's right. Um, entertainment, ISIS, ISIS yeah. um, as entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you think that like this was an internal discussion, like the discussion we're having right now about this fork, hmm. yeah. do you think it was ever debated? I wonder. Because these documents yeah. are like, low level right yeah. this higher level history about like what how they, they decided thinking. what they were going to do we i haven't found those documents yet i hope to <laughs> <laughs> yeah do you have a do you have a beat on where those are yeah um it's a really good question i have long wondered look one of the prevailing myths about isis that I have worked a lot to try to debunk is the notion that they began attacking us in retaliation for our aggressions against them And that's total BS. If you look at the court records that have come out of returning ISIS fighters who came back to Europe to carry out attacks, they begin coming back in January of 2014. We don't begin our strikes in Syria until I think August, September of 2014. Mm -hmm. So they begin sending fighters back nine months before American aggression begins in Syria and Iraq from the Obama administration's attempts to take out ISIS. So clearly, like end of 2013, they were plotting this. They were plotting to send fighters back to Paris, to to other countries to do this. Why? You know, why when they had this enormous territory, couldn't they have just stuck to that? And that's where I think, you know, some people will disagree with me. But I think one of the most important elements of ISIS is understanding that there is an element of religion behind this. There's an element of theology, of ideology. I think that their leadership truly believes that they were declaring a global caliphate. 
And this was a caliphate that was going to grow all over the world. They point to scripture about how the jihadists are going to take over Jerusalem and how they're going to take over Rome. And so I think that aligned with that, they aimed for for the West. And in the end, that was part of their undoing. I went back and looked at my notes yeah. for the first time. I wow, you still have there. notes from all the way back Th- Thank then? you, Evernote. Uh, yeah. Advertisement for Evernote. Yeah. And the first question I wanted to get you, ask you, and yeah. I think it was the central theme of what we discussed, was when a terror group wants media attention yeah. and is doing things to get media, to attention. Get media attention, yeah. and you are the person who covering is them. <laughs> covering them and That's putting right. them on the front page. That's right. And Every act that you take as a journalist is, and this is why I was surprised the FBI said they want to kill you, because I'm not going to say you helped them, but you were the person who was putting these on the front page and yeah. was dealing with this. Yeah. With a few years removed, yeah. having moved from A1 to A7 for some of these stories, how do you regard like how you dealt with that challenge and what would you say to people who are put in that situation again, which they will I'm gonna be? Turn it on, I'm going to turn it on its head, and I'm going to say that we didn't cover them enough mm-hmm. because there are still so many misperceptions about this group. They remain so badly misunderstood. Yeah. And the people who believe that it's media attention that is driving people to ISIS, I would like to ask them, show me the person that joined ISIS because of an article that they read in the New York Times. Right. That doesn't exist. Show me the person that joined ISIS because of something they saw on CNN. People are joining ISIS because they end up in these chat rooms and they end up in an echo chamber where they are consuming the media that these people are giving them, which is completely distorted, where they are showing pictures. I I literally caught them doing this, where they are showing pictures of a tragedy that happened in India, I think in the 1980s. It's called the Bhopal gas tragedy. I need to look up the date. I think it was the 1980s. Yeah, I think you're right. It was a gas leak it's that like ended a up cloud co- of gas, gas in, in Bhopal, India yeah. that, from a factory that ended up killing dozens of people. Union carbide, I think was it. Yeah, yeah, God, you're good. You're really good. I didn't remember that. There's a famous picture that is taken by a photographer named Pablo Bartolomeu. I happen to know who took it because I know I, I had once met Pablo. And it's a picture of a little boy being laid to rest in the ground. He's Muslim. And you know he's Muslim because of the, the type of burial that is happening. And all of the tones are sort of sepia, brown, because it's the earth. It's his body, except his eyes, which have this eerie, like, gray color to them. And the pupils are dilated to, like, the size of, you know, they look like big markables. I caught them in their Telegram channels, passing around this picture of something that happened in the 1980s in basically a factory disaster uh, in India as an example of children killed in American airstrikes. That's what they do. They take images of things that happened on one part of the world and everything is, this is a Muslim child that has been killed by an American bomb. This is a Muslim woman that has been raped by an American soldier. This is, it's fake news. It's truly fake news. And that is what they use to lure in people like Huzaifa, who sit there and cry in front of their computers at the images that they're seeing from this part of the world and who feel a desire to help and who are then channeled into, oh, you want to help? Come here. We are we are the soldiers of God. We are the only ones who are truly fighting this fight. That's where the radicalization happens. It's not from a page one story in the New York Times, because if you actually read that story, the portrayal of 
the violence is not positive, right? <laughs> right. The violence of that happened in Paris is in no way described as justified or good or whatever. It's just the opposite, right? Do you think to push back slightly against that notion? I think that someone within ISIS, I don't know at all what their motivations yeah. are, like ultimately, but would say, for the price of a gun, a van, and a couple human lives, yeah. you can get advertisement worth millions of dollars sure. on the front page of all of these world newspapers. And is there an element of um, all publicity is good publicity? I thought when we first talked that this was yeah. ISIS's central goal. Yeah. Like the caliphate stuff was like a side pot at that time. I thought their goal was to like get me to know the name ISIS and stay right. on the front page as long. It almost obscured the actual goals that yeah. you describe in Caliphate. Yeah. Tell me about like how those two things have been weighed over time for you. So regarding their goals, I think that their goals have always been twofold. One, it's to create this Islamic utopia, which is yep. a territory. It's a piece of real estate. And the other is to destroy the West and to destroy the West in a number of ways, through attacks on our homeland, by attacking gas installations run by American companies in Africa, through hacking, through a misinformation campaign. Mm. And the two have always coexisted. Uh, if you look back even to the earliest days of Zarqawi's Al-Qaeda in Iraq, very early on, he started carrying out attacks in Jordan against American targets. So people were under the impression that Al-Qaeda in Iraq, oh, they're just local, regional. They just have some sort of local grievance. JV yeah. team. Yeah. JV team, you know. Yeah. yeah, why are they going to Jordan to try to kill the American ambassador? Why, you know? Jordan, you know, yeah. not, not Iraq. Why are they hitting the Holiday Inn and other, you know, American chain hotels in Jordan, right? Yeah, I mean, you it, the way that Looming Tower describes it was yeah. that the goal was always to draw the West into a confrontation. And that too, and that too. But the ISIS wrinkle that's like maybe the hardest to wrap your head around yeah. as American, like the like sports better in me, yeah. just as like, yeah. come on, yeah. which is we're going to take over the whole world. Yeah. Where every single country, every single person. Yeah. And that, it took me a long time to take that idea seriously. All over Mosul. I mean, I'd, I'd be walking into the ruins of these buildings with, with Hawk, my translator, and we would look at um, the graffiti that was on the walls. And so many times we would find phrases about, we're going to take over Rome. Yeah. We're heading to Rome. We're marching. The, you know, the soldiers of God are marching to Rome. Yeah. So it sounds so silly, so stupid. Like, you're like seriously? Like, you really thought you were going to do that, you know? But... <laughs> But they spray painted it so many times and it comes up so often in their propaganda that at a certain point you just sit there and go, yeah, at least some members of their army yeah. believed that this was a realistic goal. Well, and the, the Yazidi slaves that you yeah. interviewed not only believed it was a goal, believed yeah. that it already happened. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I mean, it's so stark when you speak to them that that they came out and they literally thought the entire world was ISIS. Yeah. It's like North, I mean, it's North Korea is the closest corollary. Is it? Yeah. Well, I just yeah. think of people who are, people in North Korea believe that there's a widespread starvation in America. Is that and right? That, yeah. yeah. And that, that uh, you know, the rest of the world is basically on hunger subsistence and they believe they live in the richest country in the world. And, and, you know, and these things sound so insane, but we're at a point in time in our own history right now where we are seeing the power of misinformation, the power of misinformation in a country like America, yep. that is a democratic, free country where people can go to Google, you yep. know, and Google stuff. And yet a significant number of people believe Pizzagate. 
you know, mm-hmm. believed that Hillary Clinton was running some sort of sex trafficking ring out yep. of a pizza parlor in a suburb of Washington, right? Yep. That's in a place where you don't have anybody putting a gun to your head and in a place where you have TV and internet. Imagine if you're living inside the caliphate and satellite television has been banned and internet has been banned and you're not allowed to have a cell phone and all you have is the information that is being imparted to you by the people around you. You mentioned that um, a scholarly institution, a university, was picking up these papers. Are there other people studying this? Is this, like, I don't know anyone else who's doing this work that you're doing. Oh, yeah, there's a wonderful researcher called Ayman Tamimi. Um, He's Iraqi, but uh, raised in in Britain. He created the website that, to me, is sort of the model for this, based on the ISIS documents that he himself recovered through sources in Iraq and Syria. And he has, I think, about 900 900 specimens, as he calls them. Um, He was one of the people who was one of our fact checkers and who vetted these documents for us. And his archive has helped me so much. You know, like I, whenever I'm researching ISIS, that's one of the first places I go to see, is there any document that he has that links to this particular issue? My archive is 15,000 pages. um, So it's very big. And that is my dream is to share this with others. I think that there's so much more to be written beyond what I have been able to do. You mentioned a book. Um, So I can see that you're already projecting this forward. But is there ever a time you can imagine leaving this story behind? Is this a life mission for you? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, A couple of uh, I think it was in the fall of 2016, we were preparing like you know, my, my desk was preparing sort of goals for the next year. And my editor came to me and said, do you think that you would like to look at far right extremism, white nationalism? And I think at that point he was thinking of, you know, the like, stuff, oh, the stuff that we're seeing. Arabic. <laughs> <laughs> but I haven't, but I haven't. Sadly. Um, I think he was thinking about what's happening in Hungary, sure. and, you know, places like that. Oh, okay, okay, and, okay. Um, and at that point in time, I mean, it was just the beginning of the operation against Mosul. It had yeah. just started. And I was like, are you kidding me? I like, I'm, I'm like drowning. I can't yeah. possibly do anything else. And now I'm wondering if maybe that's, if that's a natural place to sort of try to stretch into. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting you brought that up because at the period, at the time we last talked, people were finally starting to take ISIS seriously and That's saying right. ISIS is a bigger threat than Al-Qaeda. Right. And there was a little bit of a like MySpace Facebook narrative <laughs> That's going right. On. That's right. That's right. And I wonder what's coming next. And I, I won't yeah. ask you to predict it. Yeah. But I'm wondering if you could, for reporters, yeah. there'd never been anything like ISIS. There's no playbook for covering a group like yeah. ISIS. Yeah. Um, if you've learned anything about being thrust into a geopolitical situation that's truly new and that's trying right. to explain it to people. I mean, my major takeaway that I have come away with in this work is go to the enemy, talk to the enemy. I think that the way that Al-Qaeda and ISIS is typically covered is by reporters who just speak to officials in Washington. <laughs> the best sometimes speak to officials in Washington and maybe Paris and London. Right. Like, OK, let's let's talk to a couple of other coalition partners. That's only one side, you know, right. of the story. And I have learned so much by seeking out their documents, reading their propaganda very carefully, because it's interesting. Their propaganda is when they're trying to communicate something. Yeah. What are they trying to communicate? What are the themes that they keep on on hitting on? And then if you can, speaking to them themselves. Yeah. And so I think what's helped me in this particular beat is and I've had this since I was, I think, a child. I'll talk to anyone. I'll literally talk to anyone. And I think that because, I mean, ISIS, in the end, 
they are the ultimate boogeyman. And so I think a lot of reporters just shy from that. You know, that that even the act of speaking to them is somehow showing them too much humanity, yeah. you know, and and therefore we might be legitimizing them or, you know, giving them importance. In the end, they're a source, right? In the end, they're just a source. If this was the Nazi era, I would love to be able to go to speak to Nazis and sit there with, you know, that guard and ask him, why did you do what you did? And try to hear how that person justifies it. Having done this uh, in a newspaper yeah. and now having done this in audio, yeah. when you ask the person that and you play back their yeah. words yeah. verbatim, I'm wondering how the different formats and, and different right. ways of presenting these people affect how people perceive them. Because I felt very different yeah. listening to the Canadian man That's right. than I felt reading your transcripts of people recruiting an ISIS room. Of course. Of course. Um, it, yeah. I think it gave me first a sense of empathy where yeah. I said this is a lost kid and then a sense of even greater disgust. That's right. And That's they right. when he sort of at the end, he was like, yeah, I realized that they weren't like really doing the Islamic principles. Like, yeah. I'm like, so basically you would join ISIS light. That's like, right. That's you'd right. be into this if it had been ISIS with like a little less murdering. Yeah, a little, you know, just a little tweak here and there yeah. and you'd be fine. Yeah. Um, so this is an, an interesting question. I don't think that the Josefa story could have worked for print. Hmm. At the New York Times, we very rarely use anonymous sources. And this is an entire story based on a person that we cannot identify. It would be Abu Huzaifa, right? That's not his real name, yeah. right? We were able to do it for audio because I think audio, when you hear somebody's voice, there's emotional information, right, that is imparted. So, for example, in one of the execution sequences where he's talking about stabbing to death this prisoner, he was clearly so nervous, and I think he was having almost like a traumatic reaction to describing it to us. And you hear him obsessively, he's doing like this, and what he's doing is he's rubbing his beard in this kind of, almost like in a tick, you know? Yeah. And you hear it because the microphone is right there. That's the kind of thing where I could throw in a sentence, you know, in a story, and he obsessively rubbed his beard as he described thrusting the knife into the heart of his victim. Somehow doesn't carry the same the same way right? I totally agree there's also he he uses the phrase it is what it is yeah uh, you know that's a totally banal cliche phrase yeah, yeah. Uh, it means to me in the context of him the emotion means um, I've come to the end of my remorse yeah. I, I will yeah. apologize no, no further that's right and he's short of a full apology that's right when he says it that's right yeah and yeah. I don't think I could get that as text yeah yeah and it's hard for me to say this because obviously I've spent my entire career in text um, and I think the written word is the most powerful medium where I wouldn't be in yeah. it, right? But I think that this was the perfect vehicle for his story where you and, and where you hear these inflection points where it begins with him sounding quite remorseful and it ends with him sounding more strident, I think, than ever. Yeah, uh, Yeah, and arrogant, cocky, and as a person who has somehow, you know, like tricked the system. I guess a very artful writer could do that maybe in a New Yorker piece. <laughs> yeah. Right? You need a lot of space. You need a lot of space to go through all of those emotional beats. And it's hard to do it without without implicating the integrity of the reporter, right? Yeah. Because you're, you're allowing people to make their own judgments by hearing his voice mm -hmm. rather than me crafting an image of him based on my impression of what he said, right? Yeah. So for all those reasons, I think that audio was a good marriage for Josefa's story.
Do you think Caliphate has been listened to within the remaining ISIS world? I know for sure they have. I know for sure um, because I see them talking about it. Uh, and Huzaifa, Huzaifa told me that he's gotten kind of these admiring messages from like members of Al Qaeda who are like, "Hey, man, <laughs> you know, oh, like, yeah. like heard you like, on the podcast, heard you on the podcast, you know." And um, I've gotten two letters from ISIS prisoners in American jails who basically want to be profiled, you know? Yeah. Um, this is so funny because when we started out, I had sent like this wave of like letters to lawyers and defendants and no nobody wanted to do it. Nobody, yeah. you know, I could, it was just like, no, 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 no. Um, and so now that reminds me, I need to write to these, these two people. <laughs> How are people within this world taking the decline of ISIS? Like, it, it, the chance of ISIS taking over the yeah. whole world seems like it's lower now than it was definitely, a year or two definitely. ago. So their narrative now is a couple of things. It's look at how many countries it took. You know, yeah. every country in the world was fighting our little state. Yeah. And our fighters valiantly, you know, fought to the death. And yet we're still here. Yeah. You know? it, it's a David and Goliath yeah. um, argument. And the other thing is they're still here. I mean, right. they still hold, just in Iraq and Syria, they, they hold between 900 and 1,000 square miles of territory, which is far more than they held in 2011, 2012, when American forces were drawing down, right. uh, when they were considered defeated the last time around. And, and their presence is growing in places like Afghanistan, Niger, uh, Libya, etc. So I think that there's going to be a period of dormancy and then something's going to happen. The most notable thing that yeah. stuck with me the most from the yeah. whole podcast, I don't remember if you're saying it or you're quoting someone uh -huh. on this, that we should fear ISIS's ability to govern, yes. not their fear to conquer. That's some, right. some, I'm mangling it, that. Yes, right? this is from an ISIS, a person who's written a book about ISIS, and he said, uh, we should be more afraid of ISIS's capacity to govern than of their fighters. Which I read as... The blueprint is out there now, yeah. and the blueprint of how to drive in with some fighters and take a town always existed. That's right. The blueprint of setting up a, government. Bu a bureaucracy right. is, is the Being new idea. Being able to pick up the trash, Yes. right? You would think that a municipality would be able to, to figure out how to do that, but in a place like Mosul, the Iraqi government completely dropped the ball. And the fact that ISIS could come in and ensure that the streets were cleaner than they were before, that's a big deal. You yeah. know, to people. And right now, uh, as we get further and further from the liberation and as whole stretches of Iraq and Syria remain in ruins, people start to look back with the beginning of nostalgia for what they remember of, of terrorist rule. Obviously, it's a minority of people. Sure. But they were a minority to begin with. They yeah. were a minority to begin with. But this is a group that has studied people's grievances and they figured out a couple of things that won them points with people. And that is the thing that I think is most dangerous about them. So uh, where does that leave you? I mean, I'm working full health. I'm, <laughs> I'm heading to Syria and Iraq soon. Yeah. Uh, have a couple of stories that I want to pump out. I have a couple of ideas to do in Africa about ISIS-related themes there. Uh, yeah, and I just keep going. Right. Well, um, will you come back and talk about these experiences at some point? Too in the long future? form, you know, chapter three. Chapter sure. Three. Okay. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's booked now. It's a total pleasure. Thanks for listening to Long Form. Thanks to my guest, Rukmini Kalamaki, repeat guest. Uh, thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. 
Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer. Thanks to our intern, Tyler McCloskey. Thanks to our incredible sponsors this week. We had uh, LeVar Burton Reads. Subscribe to that podcast. We had The Supergroup on Stitcher Premium. Subscribe to that podcast, or rather, subscribe to Stitcher Premium and get that podcast. Uh, you can go to Google Play, our sponsor, to get audiobooks now. Check that out. And of course, we are brought to you, as always, by the good people at MailChimp and the good people at Pit Writers. That's the writing program at the University of Pittsburgh, generously supporting this show. Uh, you can get in touch with us by sending us a letter at editors at longform.org, a letter by which I mean an email. Uh, we love to hear feedback, who you'd like to hear on the show, uh, and we'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.